All that sounded like to me was that this is a test. <laughs> if you're going to vote or something at end. Which I've actually done that before too. Terrifying. <laughs> I'm going to blow it before I even get started. I'm going to tell you what the point of Genesis 25 is. And the point is this. God keeps His promises to His people. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard that recently? If you've been paying attention, you know that that was actually the point of last week's sermon. Was it not? God keeps His promises to His people. God is faithful. This has often been the point of the biblical text in our study of the book of Genesis. And so I guess... There are a couple ways that you could look at that. You could say, hey, this sermon has the same point as last week's sermon and the sermon before that. This is really lame. This is boring. Do we have to keep hearing the same things over and over and over? Or you could look at it a different way. The way that I like to look at it is that I think this is true about most of the Scripture. The thing that I need to hear, such as, I'll just give you uh, some examples um, love God more than everything else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't worry, but instead pray. Cast your cares upon God. Uh, how about this? God loves me and forgives me because of what Jesus did, not because of what I have done. Forgive other people just like Christ forgave you. Did I just say anything that you have never heard before as a Christian? No. But are they the most profound things that you need to hear and that we need to hear again and again and again? That's how I see the Scriptures. The most important things I need to hear are the things that I already know I need to be reminded. The theme of God's promise keeping, that God keeps His promises, that continues today in chapter 25, and we see God remain faithful to His promises to Abraham concerning Isaac, and His promises to Abraham concerning Ishmael, and then finally we're going to meet a new patriarch today, God is faithful to His promises to Jacob, and so the first promise we see kept is God's promise concerning Isaac, so turn with me to Genesis Chapter 25, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashtarim, Letushim, and Leumim. If you say them really fast, people will think you know that you know how to pronounce this. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. So, you may have noticed that Abraham picked up another girl. Did you catch that? And, and this is going back in time. Last week we ended our, our passage with Abraham's son, Isaac, finding a wife. He finds Rebecca. But now we're backing up, and, and the author of the Scripture is going to tie up some loose ends. So uh, we get to back up, and we find out about another wife, or likely more like a concubine, 
who was given to Abraham. And I want you to understand the point of this lineage is not, as my Mormon friends sitting in my living room once tried to point out to me, uh, the point of this lineage is not to condone the practice of polygamy among God's people. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, gives us very clearly God's pattern, God's prototype for marriage. He created Adam and Eve. He intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman, and they are to become one flesh until they die. That's God's plan for marriage. And so we have to remember... Um, that when we're interpreting narrative portions of the Bible, narrative, we're just telling the history. They're telling the history of God with His people. We need to know the difference between what God is merely describing in His Word, meaning telling us what happened, and prescribing what should happen. And so when we see Father Abraham picks up another bride and has children with her, we see that God is here describing what happened. God is not saying, and Abraham did this. Right? Very rarely in a narrative do you have God come behind the scenes and say, actually, what happened just now really ticks me off. He doesn't do that very much. We actually get one of those in this passage. At the very end of chapter 25, we're going to see God come in and make a moral pronouncement on the history that is unfolding. But oftentimes we just see God is describing what happened, not prescribing what should happen. The points in mentioning Abraham's children through this concubine Keturah is not to show the glories of the polygamous life, but to show that even through this ungodly setup, even through God, uh, Abraham's ungodly actions, what God is actually doing is keeping His promise to Abraham. If you keep your place in Genesis 25 and just look back at some of these promises... This is what God has said that Abraham will have. In Genesis 13, verse 16, God says, uh, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Turn the page to Genesis 15, verse 5. God said, and he brought him outside, and God said, Look, toward the heaven, and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then, uh, on the next page, Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And so what we see here in this lineage of many more children through Keturah, Abraham's concubine, God is keeping His promise. He said, your descendants will be like the grains of sand. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Too many to even count. And so when the ancients were reading this for the first time, and they read the names of these sons of Keturah, they're not just hearing about the names of men. They associate these men with nations. Hey, those people came from Abraham. And these people came from Abraham. And these people came from Abraham. 
God's keeping His promise. But even so, we know that Isaac is still the seed through whom God will bless the whole world. He is the child of the promise. And so we see now that God's faithful promise keeping to Isaac uh, as Abraham hands out his inheritance before his death. And so look at verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Verse 7. These are the days and the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years. That's how the Hebrew language exaggerates or puts an exclamation mark. They say, old, old, good, good, full, old man. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing there. They want you to understand. Abraham lived a long time. He was full of good years. They were good. Yes, old. That's Abraham. Verse 8, Abraham breathes his last. And, oh, I read that, sorry. Uh, verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai. Roy. Again, this passage all about God keeping His promises. God said in Genesis 15, 15, You shall be buried in a good old age. He's buried with Sarah, his wife. And even though he's dead, we see God's promise continues. Abraham's dead, he's in the tomb, but it says God continues to bless his son Isaac. It says that he gave everything that he had to Isaac. But as the telling of the funeral procession might have uh, shown you, he's got another son from another wife that maybe we forgot about. He shows up for the funeral to help bury his dad. That son is Ishmael, the son of Hagar, his first concubine, we presume. And so then God catches us up on his promises to Abraham's son, Ishmael. What did God promise Ishmael? Well, in Genesis 16, verse 11, God said this about Ishmael. Uh, and the angel of the Lord told her, speaking to Hagar, his mother, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So that's one promise. And in chapter 17, verse 20, God tells Abraham, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And he says much the same in Genesis chapter 21, verse 13. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God has promised to Ishmael uh, that he will have 12 princes come from him, that he will be a mighty nation. And he also gives us a, 
uh, a shot across the bow that kind of says, oh yeah, and Abraham, he's going to be a tough dude. He's going to fight with all of his family members. This is going to be a bickering family. That's what it means when he says he will dwell over against all of his brothers. And so, what do we find out about the fulfillment of these promises in Genesis chapter 25? We find out that God keeps his promises concerning Ishmael. Why would we expect anything less? In verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages, by their encampments. How many? Twelve princes according to their tribes, just like Genesis 17:20 said. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all of his kinsmen, as per Genesis 16, verse 12. God has kept his promises to make many nations of Abraham through the concubine Keturah and through Hagar, his concubine, through his son Ishmael. But our text really isn't about all of these people. These are not the covenant people of God. It's awesome to know that God is faithful even to people who are not a part of his covenant promises. But as verse 5 and verse 11 have already tipped us off, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. God continued to bless Isaac in verse 11. We know from Genesis 22, I'm not actually going to read that passage, but right after Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac to God, God re-upped on his promise and he said, this is the boy. I promised you in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants and this promise is continued through Isaac. I'm going to bless the whole world through your son Isaac. And so now we've tied up some loose ends in Abraham's family tree at his death. We've seen God keep his promises regarding those who are not his people. And now we get back to the story of salvation. The story of the descendants of Abraham and now Isaac. And so the first thing that we see as we move to Isaac's family line is not about a promise fulfilled anymore. We're done doing that. Now we're going to see God make a new promise concerning Jacob. You don't know him yet. And I'm sure you've never read this story before, so sit on the edge of your seat and I'll tell you about him. God makes a promise concerning Jacob in Genesis 25, verse 19 and 20. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Last week when we got to this part, uh, Dylan celebrated, didn't he? He said, finally, Isaac's got a woman in the tent, which is a big deal when all of your promises are about 
godly offspring coming. You're having children and, and Isaac doesn't have a wife. And so it was a rejoicing time. It was a great victory to have a woman, Rebecca, in the tent. That was absolutely true. But guess what? Just like real life, the story is never quite so easy. Especially when the story concerns the historic battle between the seed of the serpent, the enemies of God, and the seed of the woman, who Genesis 3.15 says will finally come and crush the serpent's head. So this is a complicated story, and we see that right away. That we celebrate, we have a woman in the tent, but guess what? There are some problems here in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That happens really quickly. What they just squished into one sentence there was 20 years of waiting for her to conceive. It just sounds like, she's barren, but Isaac prayed, and God gave her conception. Let's move along here. 20 years he prayed for that to happen. Just like his mom, Sarah, Isaac's wife was barren. This is a huge problem again. The promises of God rest on offspring, having children in this story. But what did Abraham and Sarah do when they couldn't conceive? Did they just wait for God? Did they pray? No. Sarah went over, grabbed her servant girl. Here, this girl can have a baby. Try this. Got a little bit messy. That's not what Isaac did. They prayed for 20 years. Have you prayed for something faithfully for 20 years and not given up until God gave that to you? That's an embarrassing question for me. And there's probably an entire sermon, I think, in that idea alone. And I told, that's why I told Dylan that I needed a series for this chapter. That I needed three or four chapters to get all the way through chapter 25. But Dylan is very arrogant and very selfish. And he said no. So I just have to move on. I'm sorry. So 20 years, they wait, they pray, and oddly enough, the great news of this pregnancy, finally she conceives, finally they're going to have a baby. This good news is followed by terrible news. And the bad news is that this pregnancy is so painful for Rebecca that she would just rather not be pregnant at all. In fact, she hints around that she would rather be dead than carry these children to term. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went and inquired of the Lord. It's, this is not, uh, literally it says that the children smashed against themselves inside of her. Okay, this is violent. This is painful. This is not like, oh, Jacob, the, the babies are fighting in here. Come here, you can feel them punching each other. That's, that's not a cute little thing. This is more like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. If, if this is what it's like to be pregnant, God, take these children from me. I can't do this. She's ready to give up. And so she cries out to God. She prays. And God tells her just what is happening 
in that womb of hers. Look at verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So there, it's not just there that there are two sons in her womb who will both be sons of Abraham and Israel and the Jewish nation. He's saying, no, no, they're, they're not just two boys. There are two nations who are in your womb, and they are warring now, and they will always be at war. And the son of the promise, the one who carries the torch of Abraham, the one through whom the whole world will be blessed, it's not going to be the boy that you think it is. Because in their day, they had the birthright and the blessing that all goes to the firstborn son. And so God's telling them in advance, the older son is actually going to be a servant of the younger son. You can pretty much write those words of God down as the theme for the next ten chapters of the book of Genesis. The older will serve the younger. God, in His divine foreknowledge, that means God knows the end from the beginning, he knows everything that is going to happen. And in his divine sovereignty, that means God is orchestrating history according to his good will and purposes. By his divine foreknowledge and his divine sovereignty, God tells Rebecca where this womb fight is headed. Next we learn how this divine will of God is achieved through the moral and immoral acts of his creatures. This is true throughout the Bible, that at the same time that God is sovereignly writing the story of history, human beings are reaping what they sow. Human beings are acting according to their own desires, and they are living with the consequences of what they do. So when we say that God is in control and God is sovereign, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what people do. And so God has just told us what's going to happen with these boys, and now we see how that happens through their actions. And so depending on which side you want to lean, God's sovereignty or human responsibility, I've, I've given you two different titles for this section so you can lean wherever you want. Um, if you want to think of this from the point of view of God and His sovereignty, you could call this, now God is keeping His promises to Jacob. But if you're more comfortable looking at the human side, you could call this Esau self-destructs. Verse 24. This is about to get fun and weird. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Hairy. Red. Baby number one. The baby is covered in hair. Maybe red hair. Maybe he just has really red skin and he's hairy. I don't know, but he, they have a hairy baby. And if your first thought was gross, you got it. You're right. Have you ever been shocked at the sight of your newborn baby? Maybe a mama wouldn't say it. Maybe the guests would say it. Oh, let's see. Oh. He's really something. 
just let's just do this for fun. Parents, why don't you stand up right now and point out the child that you thought was the most shocking when you first saw them? Can you do that? Maybe no one wants to. Okay. I didn't think anybody would want to do that. Uh, my my boys like to hear the story about the day they were born because they they kind of make fun of each other a little bit. Uh, when Ezra was born, the word that comes to mind was just long. And it wasn't that he was exceptionally long. It just he had these hands and these fingers that were just so long and moving around. This kid has like spider hands. What can he do with those? It's really strange. And then Judah was born. Judah was 11 pounds. And he didn't really have a body. He was just an 11 pound head. His body was like baby Stewie. He had this little, little body and gigantic head. And his head was purple. Because it's hard to, you know, I won't go into that. It's a lot of pressure that day. Mom remembers that day very well. Judah, I love you. You're a handsome man. No. But your head has always been the same exact size. <laughs> On the day Zeb was born, Janine decided that maybe for the first time ever, for her, those pain-relieving drugs that moms take at the hospital to make giving birth to children a little bit easier, maybe she'd be okay with doing that. And so we, what we remember most about the day Zeb was born is that when Zeb met his mother, she had a pain-free, happy smile on her face, like she just showed up at the hospital. That was a great day. <laughs> but can you imagine being the dad? Here comes baby. You see baby, and you hold up the baby to your wife, and he looks like a Sasquatch. <laughs> He's covered in red hair. He's like, honey, um, it's really not that bad. I think we should name him Chewbacca. He looks like a Chewbacca, maybe. Uh, but that's what Esau looked like. And the description is meant to shock us because they're intentional in describing him more as an animal, a wild animal, than as a human. But there's another child in her womb. So here comes child number two, verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob, heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So we see they were fighting in the womb and these boys are fighting on the way out. Esau gets out first. Here comes Jacob grabbing his heel, trying to pull him back in. I want out first. You're not better than me. Jacob is wrestling with his brother. And the next verse tells us exactly what kind of men Harry and Grabby are going to be. Or animal and cheater, however you want to, to divvy them up. Who do they grow up to be? It tells what they're like in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. got a wild hunter, we've got a quiet man dwelling in tents. Did our, did our pastor of worship arts and laser beams come through? Do I have a slide? I do have a slide? Okay. I don't. I, don't, I put this up here, not, this is a bad comparison. What you're thinking in your mind when you read about these boys 
if, if you're an American, especially if you're an American male like me, your impression is wrong. Because when you read about Esau, you are thinking, tough, hairy dude. Oh, he's a hunter. He's out roaming around killing stuff. He's hairy. Awesome. You're thinking Josie Wales with his six shooters, right? You're thinking, this is an awesome guy. And when you hear about this, I mean, just think about this. How does this sound to you? Um, Jacob is uh, hes a quiet man dwelling in the tents. That sound awesome to you? Not quite, but it's not, it's not Clint Eastwood versus uh, Justin Bieber in, in any way. That's, that's not who these people are. When it describes Esau, uh, actually when you hear about a skillful hunter, a man of the field in, in the context of the Old Testament, even in the context of, of Genesis, who's the last mighty hunter before the Lord that we heard about? His name was Nimrod. And he was a killer. He was bad. He was crazy. And he's the one who, who eventually starts orchestrating the building of the Tower of Babel. So this is not saying anything good about Esau. Nothing negative about hunting today. Not, there's no real correlation. They're just continuing their description of Esau as a wild, uncivilized, unruly man. He's a wild beast and he's out killing wild beasts. And when it describes Isaac, he doesn't really get a fair shake. Uh, here either with, with our English translation. To say that he is a quiet man is to say that he is a civilized, cultured man. He's highly cultured. It's, it often means that he's of perfect morality. So, so he is a mature person. He's a responsible, mature, mature man who is trustworthy. He's going to do the right thing. And when it says that he's among the tents, this means that he is staying close to home. He is a shepherd, all right? And that's what the descendants of Abraham do. They are shepherds. They take care of sheep. Um, it's not quite as crazy as it sounds. Uh, Jacob isn't a, what, what did Dad call us? He called us a houseplant. If we stayed in the house on Saturday morning past 9 o'clock, we were houseplants. I didn't raise any houseplants to get out here and work. Now, that's not who Jacob is. He's not a mama's boy. Now, you think these boys are going to get along? The mighty, wild, crazy hunter and the sheep herder who is civilized and sane? No. And nor will Israel and or Edom, the nations that will come from them. But not only are they divided among themselves, their differences even divide their parents. This is really bad. Look at verse 28. This is not good. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, I tell all of my sons individually, usually in their ear quietly, say, you're my favorite son. <laughs> and I think Zeb is the only one who doesn't see through it yet. Because Ezra and, Ezra and Judah are saying, yeah, that he's just kidding. Dad loves all of us. We're all his favorites. He says that to all of us. But Zeb is thinking, oh, I don't know. I think I really am Dad's favorite son. <laughs> I think he loves me the most. But Isaac and Rebekah are serious. They really believe this. They're, they're favoring their kids. And why does Isaac love Ishmael? It says because he's a foodie. Because he really likes the wild game that he kills and brings home. He likes to eat. And so he's favoring his son. So he's saying essentially, you know, maybe my son is an evil, ruthless beast. But man, I love this mountain lion jerky. Why does Rebecca love Isaac? The text doesn't say. But maybe it's because she's already heard from God that, 
The older will serve the younger. God has said, this is the son of the promise, Jacob. Or maybe it's because he takes care of the sheep, the main business of the house. Or maybe it's just because her other son happens to be a barbarian werewolf. But we'll see this parent divide get uglier and turn into more of a problem in chapter 27. So we'll move on to our final episode of the chapter. How does it come about that God's Word is fulfilled? The older will serve the younger. And the the great family reversal begins with the birthright. The birthright is the ancient custom where the firstborn son gets a double portion of all the land, all the money, and all the assets, and he is considered the leader spiritually of the family. He's the head. He's in charge. But if you were in Abraham's family, if you're Isaac's sons, the birthright, that position of authority means so much more than that. In Abraham's family, the real birthright is to be the bearer of the promises of God. It's to live in the promised land. It's to be blessed by God. It's to be the people that God says, I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. You'll have descendants who are kings. Abraham's birthright includes having a descendant through whom God will bless the whole earth. And one of these twins covets that birthright, cherishes these promises. One of these twins believes that God is going to do what He says He's going to do, what He said to His father and His grandfather. And one of these twins could not care less. Who do you think it's going to be? Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore the name was called, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob He'd been thinking about the future. He'd been thinking about the promises of God. And he wanted them so badly, he didn't mind manipulating his brother. Doing his brother wrong to get his hands on the birthright. Esau, he wasn't a man who cared about the future. He was thinking about right now. What do I need right now? I'm hungry. Who cares about the future? Give me the stew now. Was Jacob cold and calculating? Yes. Had he been thinking about this? <laughs> it just seems pretty random. Hey, give me something to eat. Give me all of the future first. He'd been planning this. He'd been thinking about a way to take this from his brother. 
but he desired a good thing. He desired the best thing. He desired a godly thing, though he went about attaining it in a sinful way. But Esau, on the other hand, that's where I, I said God pulls the curtain back and says, <clears throat> here's what I think about this. It reveals Esau's heart. That last verse, thus Esau despised his birthright. He wasn't just apathetic or uncaring toward the promises of God. He loathed it. He saw it as a worthless thing that had no value at all. It was a vile thing. Esau loved the food of the earth and hated the blessings of heaven. That's the story of Jacob and Esau from Genesis. And around 2,000 years later, the first Christians still found the story of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons, to be very helpful in understanding the salvation that we find only in Christ. In a famous passage, Paul says, and he uses their story in Romans 9, to explain how salvation is a gift given from God that nobody deserves. That's the point of Romans 9, that Jacob wasn't chosen because he was so good, and Esau wasn't rejected based on anything that they did, but God made that determination just based on His mercy and His sovereign plan. The God-inspired author of the book of Hebrews saw in Esau's folly a warning to Christians in the first century church, and it's also a warning to our church today, and it's this warning that I want to, to leave you with today. And the warning comes from uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, so you can turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 15, but I won't read it yet. Uh, the warning is this. Do not take salvation in Christ for granted. Don't take salvation in Christ for granted. The recipients of the letter of Hebrews were suffering greatly their Christian faith. And it was mostly coming from the hands of the, the Jewish community, the Jewish religious community, which they had left to become Christians. Some of them lost their jobs. Some of them lost their ability to uh, make money in the community. Some of them had been imprisoned and even had their homes plundered, all for turning their back on their old beliefs and ways of life and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And under such persecution upon falling so out of step with the culture around them some of these church folks were caving in they were giving up they were bailing out going back to Judaism just skipping corporate worship to do what everyone else was doing and the author of Hebrews told these wavering churchgoers to make sure that they weren't thinking about selling their souls for a pot of stew. 
Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He's writing to church people. Those who profess to be Christians. Those who come together to sing songs to Jesus, to pray together, and to hear the preaching of God's Word. And he says, make sure everyone there is really receiving God's salvation by grace through faith. It seems like an odd idea, obtaining the grace of God. Grace means it's a gift from God, but he's saying, make sure everyone is really receiving this. Make sure everyone's really obtaining, grabbing hold to this saving grace of God. Why? Because some of them aren't receiving the grace of God. Some of them might pull out a fellowship and prove they were never really believers in the first place. And what might pull them away, what might reveal their true colors, what are the pots of stew that they believe taste better than the cup of Christ? I'll just give you the ones that the author of Hebrews gives, so there are more. Some of them are drinking bitterness. They can't forgive others because they don't really understand God's forgiveness. And their bitterness spreads toward others in the church. That's how it works. It's causing trouble. It says it's defiling others. And so I would apply this warning to us today and say, if you've got hatred, or if you've got bitterness in your heart toward fellow believers, toward someone in this body, then I would be very careful with that. You need to repent. You need to forgive and be reconciled, be put together with one another before it's too late. His bitterness is a pot of stew that will rot your soul and creep into the souls of others through gossip. If you think someone that you know is drinking bitterness, whether it's toward the church, toward the pastors, or toward someone in this body, then... As verse 16 says, see to it that no one is doing that. When you hear negative talk, when you hear slander or gossip, invite them to repent and direct them to do what the Bible tells them to do. If you have a problem with me, if I've sinned against you, what are you supposed to do? Come talk to me. Come and tell me about my sin. That's how Christians behave. If I've sinned against you, you come and talk to me. You don't go and talk to others about me. That's gossip. Gossip destroys people and churches. Biblical confrontation over sin brings healing and health to people and churches. The other bowl of worldly soup 
that the author of Hebrews mentions that might keep you from obtaining the grace of God is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. This might be revealing more false believers in the church than any other issue in our day. More people are walking away from the body of Christ, walking away from the Bible, walking out the church doors because of the cultural wind on sexual immorality. And so the warning for us, if you're living as if what the Bible says about sexuality is irrelevant, or something that only applied a long, long time ago and has nothing to do with us today, and the again, what the Bible says about sex is one man and one woman in a married covenant relationship, if you think that's irrelevant, then I'm telling you, you're drinking dangerous soup. I don't know what your motivations are. It might be you're, you're casting off biblical standards of sex because you yourself want to break them. Or you might just be doing it because that's what everyone else is saying. And you want to be on the right side of history in affirming as good what God calls evil. Be careful with that. Repent. Be reconciled to God before it's too late. I don't have to tell you how pervasive that kind of immorality is in our culture. Our eyes being the portals to a world of lust, whether it's through our computers or our phones or wherever. And remember, really the, the soup tastes bad. The soup doesn't bless. Like all sin, it's a lie. The pleasures of sin never deliver. They never last. And they always end up causing pain and destruction in your life. And if you know someone who's drinking from this unhealthy pot of stew, from sexual immorality, then see to it. Call them to repentance. Call them to obey God and love His Word instead. Help them smash the bowls of sin that are ruining their lives. Don't assume that because you go to church... Even a good church where people love Jesus and the whole counsel of God's Word is proclaimed, don't, don't assume that just because you're there that you are obtaining the grace of God, that you are right with God. That's not how it works. Esau's father was Isaac. And it would be hard for me to be convinced that at this point in history, Isaac was not the most godly man on planet Earth. I'm not saying he was perfect, but he had faith. He was Abraham's grandson. Isaac was the son brought up under this charge to Abraham in Genesis 18:19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he was promised. Isaac was probably the most godly man on the earth, and his firstborn son, Abraham's grandson, despised the Lord. So much so, that he'd rather have a bowl of soup than to have God. 
is the most terrifying part of this for me. It's that today in this room, we know so much more about the salvation of God than Esau, and the goodness of God and the grace of God shown in Christ. We know that God is willing to put His only Son on the cross to atone for our sins. We know more than Esau could have ever imagined. We all probably have four or five Bibles in every home full of God's complete and powerful and wonderful words to us. You know what Esau had? He had the stories that his dad told him about God and the stories that his grandpa told him about God. That's what he had to go back to. We have everything that God has said to us. We can turn on the radio and hear songs about Jesus, hear the gospel preached. We have places of Christian worship set up all over town. But this doesn't make us partakers of the grace of God any more than being Abraham's grandsons. Jesus told many of Abraham's descendants, the Jews, in his own days, you aren't sons of Abraham, you are sons of your father, the devil. Why? Because you don't believe in me. If you were my children, if you were God's children, you would believe in the one whom he sent. I'm not trying to tell you that it doesn't matter if you come to church or not. You can find a condemnation for that in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect the assembly of the believers. If you're a Christian, you should be worshiping with the body when they worship. But these are the statistics that I found this week that were not very encouraging. I think they're trying to be encouraging, trying to get dads to show dads how important it was to take their kids to church and read the Bible to their kids. But the statistics said this, Today, if, a, if both mom and dad go to church, then their children are, have a 33% chance of going to church themselves. Is that encouraging? So if both mom and dad go to church, there's a 33% chance that their kids are going to go to church when they're adults. If only mom goes to church, there's a 3% chance that their kids will go to church. I know there are exceptions to that rule. I know that um, our preaching pastor is, is part of the 3%, right? I mean, Dad still doesn't go to church. God can do anything. But this is discouraging to me. That may be one of the most discouraging things in my life as a dad and as a pastor. That I, I can't make my kids love God. I can't make anybody love God. My mom and dad are here. They took us to church. Every time there was church. And it wasn't just a split world where we were churchy on Sunday and lived a different way all during the week. I saw my parents reading the word. I saw my parents praying. They read the scriptures to us. They lived out real Christianity in front of our eyes every single day. And I have a brother that's Esau. He had all of that, and he hates God. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to hurt you. It's just the reality. I'm afraid that we take all of this for granted. I'm afraid that we're not discipling our kids at home. We expect somebody else to do it. We expect the church to do it. 
afraid that we take the preaching of God's Word for granted. We don't come in saying, God, show me who you are. God, change me. We're just going through the motions. And we can even be proud and snooty and say, well, our church is better than your church. You, you can have all of that. You can love the songs that we sing. And you can fail to obtain the grace of God. Why? Because you are not grabbing hold of that with all of your might and saying, Jesus, I am broken. Save me. Amen. We can't just say no to the enticing aromas of the world. We have to continually drink deeply from the fountain of living water, Jesus Christ. Every day, reminding ourselves, reading His Word, remembering how much more satisfying God Himself is than any bowl of stew the world can offer us. He alone can satisfy us. Don't take this salvation lightly. Don't take it for granted. Drink deeply from the grace of God. And as you do that, these sinful bowls of soup will become an undesirable stench in your nostrils. I don't want to leave you with, with just warning. I just want to close with one more passage. Uh, this is written by the same person in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, I pray there are no Esau's in our midst. I pray there's no one here who despises the salvation that you offer and is just plain church. God, I pray if they are, that you would move their hearts today. They would turn from their sin and cling to you in faith for salvation. God, the truth is, uh, even if we're Jacob's, Jacob's a mess too. Jacob's broken and sinful. He didn't deserve your grace and your love and your sacrifice on the cross. We don't either. We're so glad that our salvation doesn't depend on how good we can be. But it depends on our faith and how good you've already been. Jesus, thanks for coming and giving your life for us. Thank you for those of us who believe that you have given us faith, that you've opened up our eyes and given us new life. We were dead and you made us alive. You put your Holy Spirit within us, God. Let us not get comfortable in our salvation, but let us fight and claw and scratch for ourselves, but also for our neighbors, God. Help us to see to it that none of them are pulling away from you and are neglecting you and are taking such a great salvation for granted. Help us to love our brothers and sisters enough to get in their business if we need to for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.